Okay, okay, fair, fair, fair enough. We are doing a short series uh, this month, and obviously next Sunday will be a break, but then we'll end it the last Sunday, on the mission, vision, values of Pilgrim Church. This past fall, we had a retreat with a large cross-section of the folks of Pilgrim and wrestled with this information. And then after that retreat, the the group felt it was important that a, a team hone that information down, and they created a vision team of some key leaders within our congregation, and that group worked for some months on this information about developing a a new or a revised mission vision values statement for our church and then the board went through it and there was more back and forth and so all told there was probably somewhere between I don't know 25 and 30 people and then a smaller group of leaders 11 12 that really worked on this and came up with us and this really isn't necessarily anything radically new in terms of who we are but it's defining it better last Sunday we talked about mission And what is our mission as a church and what should every local church's mission really be? And we we looked at Jesus' great commandment and great commission in Matthew 22 and Matthew 28. The vision is where we sort of drill this down and get a little more specific, and we're going to talk about that this morning. So if you're following along, I encourage you to do so in your newsletter. You should have uh, both an outline and then questions for your home groups that will meet in the next week or two, depending on uh, what their uh, cycle or schedule is for meeting. To get started, I want to share a story. There was a 67-year-old woman, and she was scheduled for a routine cataract surgery in November, and she thought it was just a dry eye and old age causing her additional discomfort on top of the cataract. But the real cause of the discomfort that got her to come in was more concerning. As the doctors began to prep her eye, they found 27, true story, 27 contact lenses stuck in the woman's right eye in a blue mass. I should have given a squeamish trigger warning. I'm sorry. Too late. Uh, Rupal Mohariah was a specialist in ophthalmology. And she said this woman that came in hadn't complained about any visual trouble before the operation other than just some pain and discomfort. But when the anesthesiologist at the hospital started to numb her eye for surgery, he found the first cluster of contacts Mohariah said he put a speculum into the eye to open it as he put the anesthetic in, and he noticed a blue mass under the top eyelid. Eventually, they found a mass of 27 lenses. We were all shocked, Mohariah said. We never came across this. A representative from the American Academy of Ophthalmology said he's seen patients have one lens stuck, but never 27. This is one for the record books, as far as I could tell, he said. The woman had been wearing monthly disposable contact lenses for about 35 years. And for those of you that don't know, I wear contact lenses or glasses, and if I didn't, you would all just kind of be a nice, fuzzy, blurry mess this morning. That might improve my sermons. I don't know. I should think about that. Um, Couldn't read the screen, but, you know, hey. (laughs) He said, for 35 years, she wore disposable contact lenses, and it's unclear how long they'd been gathering in her eye. Sometimes she said she would try to remove a contact from that eye, and she couldn't find it. And so the patient just figured, well, I must have dropped it somewhere. Mohari explained it was actually just getting stuck in her eye with all the others. Today's message is about vision, or how we experience clarity on who we are, both in our individual lives, but in a larger context, our church is really our focus today. One way to experience new clarity is to remove things that were good but not great, or things that worked well at one season but don't anymore. 
uh, a, a contact lens that is expired stuck up in your eye obviously is not a good situation. Focused on clear sight when functioned properly, but when not, becomes an impediment, impediment to vision. In this case, not getting rid of one's provided sight. Or to simplify, this woman wanted new vision. She needed fresh sight, but she hadn't fully removed the other things that literally got in the way of her moving forward with her vision desire to see, literally see in her case. Vision is often about removing obstacles or things that are causing us to be distracted from what the Lord wants us to focus on. And so these are important things to understand. What the old lens, what is the old lens that we might uh, have stuck in our eye that is blocking a clear path for the next season forward in our church? What are the things that we may need to dispose of? What are the things that the Lord, the holy ophthalmologist, needs to sort of anesthetize our eye and help us see and remove things in order that we might see clearly again? Think about that image as we discuss and look at the scriptures this morning. A little bit of review before we dig into the text I want to discuss today from scripture, but We talked about vision and mission, why they matter last Sunday, particularly mission, because the reality is all of us are driven by something. We have a mission in our lives. The question is, are we aware of it or not? Are we owning what drives us or not? And as Christians, you are called to let your life mission and vision to be uh, shaped and formed by the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. And you are to be clear on that point and to let it fully form you and shape you over the whole course of your journey on this earth. And as a church, it's even more important because we claim to be the local manifestation of Jesus until he comes again. By the power of his Holy Spirit now, we are the body of Christ until he comes again, literally and visibly one day, and wraps up the creation as we know it and brings the heavens and earth together and a new thing happens. Until that happens and he comes again in the literal form, he said, you are my body, you are my hands. So it's important that we have clarity on the mission and have a, how are we going to live it out in a local church in our particular circumstance? If you don't, other things will run the church and will run your life. There are shadow visions and shadow missions that take over. And they tend to sabotage and cause disunity. They tend to cut against kingdom diversity, biblical diversity, through forcing false unity, either whether it's a culture of a church or other cultures. And in a church that desires to become a representative more and more of Vancouver, we have to be clear on what is our source of unity so we can celebrate our, our, our differences in a good way and in a healthy way and actually use them in kingdom ways as well. Mission and vision clarify things as well. If we try to do too much, we fail. And so they give us a sense of guidelines and rails and guardrails on our path together as a church. So this morning I want to read to you from Numbers A good passage, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time and you've read uh, your Old Testament through, uh, you will will be very well aware of this passage. But it starts in Numbers chapter 13. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, uh, Numbers, Deuteronomy, if you're going through the Old Testament there and you want to turn there in your Bible. So I encourage you to do that right now. If you have a Bible, grab it. If you don't, there's one in the pew back in front of you. It is in the first books of the Old Testament. Which, in aside, the first five books of the Old Testament are often referred to as the books of Moses, uh, attributed authorship of Moses. There's also debates about how they were redacted by later scholars, but I won't geek out on that too much. I'll spare you the the, uh, the, the formation theories. But so the first five books of Moses, also called the Pentateuch, 
in the Bible and the parts of the law, when someone referred to the Old Testament as the law, they generally were referring to these five books, uh, the first part where the law is laid out, and then it's, re, uh, it's talked about again in Deuteronomy. So Numbers chapter 13. The story here, to give you just the paraphrase before we jump into the text where we're going to read, the children of Israel were delivered out of slavery in Egypt. Egypt was a place of provision during the drought and the story of Joseph, but they stayed too long in that place and actually were enslaved because of the fear of the Egyptians and the Egyptians, of course, being the dominant force in the land. And so after years and years of of slavery, I think about 400 years of slavery, they they were delivered, and Moses and, and helped lead them through this process of coming out of slavery, and God set them free in the wonders. And to this day, uh, Jewish people celebrate the deliverance of the children of Israel from Egypt. And Christians remember it as well in how we celebrate Easter or Pascha or the Jewish uh, Passover as well. And so the children are led out, but God was leading them to something. He didn't just deliver them from slavery in one land. He was bringing them into another land, which they did not know. And so they come to this land, and they decide to send spies in to scope out this land that they believe God had told them that he was going to give them. And the spies go into the land, and the spies see that this land is occupied by by giant-like people. And there's a lot of speculation on where these people were these a mix of some strange uh, hybrid, but we don't have time to unpack all of that today. But at any rate, they go in and they see that this land is occupied. They see that the land is good that God wants to give them, that it's flowing with milk and honey. If you've ever heard that phrase, that comes straight out of scripture, a land that was overflowing with milk and honey, and they bring back grapes. And uh, if you were raised in church and you're old enough, you remember flannel grams with Joshua and Caleb and the spies holding this huge cluster of grapes marching back. And the land was good. But the spies didn't all give a report that lined up with what God had already done. So we're going to start in verse 25 and Numbers 13, and it says this. They returned from investigating the land, these spies that the children of Israel sent into the land. They returned from investigating the land after 40 days. And it says in Numbers 13, 26, let me just share with you this wonderful biblical story. They came back to Moses and Aaron And the whole community of the Israelites in the wilderness of Paran and Kadesh. And they reported to the whole community and showed the fruit of the land. And they told Moses, we went to the land where you sent us. And it is indeed flowing with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. But the inhabitants are strong. And the cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the land of the Negev. And the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. In verse 30, then Caleb silenced the people before Moses, saying, Caleb was one of the spies that went in, and he said, saying, let us go up and occupy, for we are well able to conquer it. Boy, every church needs Caleb's. Church is working on turnaround and revitalization. We need the Caleb spirit in this, but don't, don't get me started on that. I'm preaching before the sermon. But the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against these people because they are stronger than we are. Then they presented the Israelites with a discouraging report of the land that they had investigated, saying, the land that we pass through to investigate is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people we saw there were of great stature. We even saw some of the Nephilim were there. The descendants of Enoch came from the Nephilim, and we seemed like grasshoppers both to ourselves and to them. 
Let's jump ahead to chapter 14. We're going to start verse, just read two more verses, starting at verse 7. Let me back up to verse 5. Then Moses and Aaron fell down with their faces because the whole assembly of Israel groaned and complained after the spies' negative report, not listening to the spies' positive report. It says, Then Moses and Aaron, the leaders of the people, fell down with their face to the ground before the whole assembled community of Israelites. And Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Japheneh, Two of those who had investigated the land tore their garments, the two spies that brought back positive reports, and they said to the whole community of Israelites, the land we pass through to investigate is exceedingly good. If the Lord delights in us, then he, he will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land that is flowing with milk and honey. And verse 9, last verse, only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection has turned aside from them, but the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And verse 10, but the whole community threatened to stone them. The glory of the Lord appeared to all the Israelites at the tent of meeting. And it goes on to report that the Lord was not happy that the lack of vision of the people listening to the 10 negative spies versus the two that were hearing from the Lord, that Lord was disappointed in the lack of faith. How you see your future affects your present and how you lean and grow into it. There is so much that we could unpack from this text today, but I want you to hear this idea of the report of Joshua and the report of Caleb versus the report of the other spies. Vision can set the trajectory for a church and for our lives as individuals. How do we see God at work in your life and in our midst right now? There is an enemy that wants us to fixate on just the broken and those things that seem impossible. In fact, the Israelites and enslaved people who wouldn't have known how to fight, who wouldn't have understood the whole idea of conquest and how do you, how do you work. I mean, they, all of those, there's a lot of ethical issues in their mind. You were, we're bracketing them for this morning. But all of that aside, these people were not prepared in their own strength to take the land, but they served a God who literally brought them out of one of the strongest empires just not that long ago. And some of us in our church and in our lives, we forget because our brain fixates on the negative and the broken and the unfinished. Sometimes we need to remind ourselves of what God has done and what he is capable of. And that it is a miracle that we are here 2,000 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ still wrestling with his life and teachings. The fact that we are even here having this discussion is a miraculous act of God. We must not forget these things. The fact that we are still wrestling with faith. Some of us are still railing against God. Some of us are saying, how can this even possibly be? But you're still asking the questions as evidence that the Spirit of God is still at work making Jesus real in our midst. Let alone those of us that have said yes to Jesus and have surrendered to him. And so the challenge with vision is that it gives us a direction for our faith and it stirs us up in the faith that God desires to do above and beyond that which we could ever ask, think, or imagine, but we're called to lean into it and take faith risks based on who he is. And so what are vision and mission, what are mission, vision, and values? We talked about this last week, if you're following along. Mission is the big purpose. For a church, it's the general overall framework It's the biblical fundamentals, the Great Commission, discipleship, evangelism, worship, all are in that Great Commission and Great Commandment. Loving God is worship. We exist to worship God. We'll unpack that more in the future, uh, Matthew 28 and Matthew 22. But we are a worshiping community. We gather together. We call people into spiritual family. 
Vision is where we drill down that mission another step. This is stuff that I love. This is stuff that I I really get excited about. So I apologize if I'm a little louder than normal. But if you can bear with it, would you say amen? amen? Vision is purpose, more localized. And vision leans forward. It's aspirational with. It's, it's something we aspire to become. And so we lean into that. It's a forward-leaning thing. And I would challenge you in your life, in each season, I would challenge a couple things, spiritual discipline-wise, that you, when you're reading scripture and praying, that you would have a notebook, that you write down thoughts as the Lord speaks to you or what jumps out at you. But I would also challenge that you have a vision for your life. That you ask, Lord, what is it that you have called and wired me to do? Maybe not for the whole season of your life. I'm sure Irma didn't have it all spelled out for her whole 96 years. Maybe she did. That would be amazing. But I I doubt it. You know, most of us, it's as we go along. It may have been to be a a, a good partner. It may have been to be a good mother and grandma. I don't know what her vision for her life is. But ask the Lord, what is the vision you have for my life? And spell those things out. Vision is what we believe is important that it will try, that it will die trying to do. It is sort of the baby that we're having. And then finally, values inform how we do the vision, and we'll talk about those in the last sermon, and I'm probably, uh, my, my excitement will be off the charts for that, I'm sure. Nelson and Apple say this, that a vision is a mental picture of a preferred future. The Joshua report that we just read was that it is a land flowing with milk and honey. It is a good land. It is a land to, that we can, we can grow fruit and, and, and food and we can, we can survive and thrive. Remember, they first went to Egypt because of a great famine. Uh, this is a place where we can become a people uh, at a whole new level. Their vision was not only that, the giants and the resistance there, uh, the Lord can handle it. We can do this. The vision of the other ten spies, of course, was the shadow vision. We can't do it. Who are we? Who are are we? We're we're just a slave people wandering around in the desert. Earlier on, they told Moses, it'd be better that we went back to Egypt. It's better to be enslaved and know what our diet's going to be. I was thinking of modern North Americans, you know. We know what the restaurants are in Egypt, you know. (laughs) We don't know what they are. We're going to have to build them ourselves. We're going to have to develop our own cuisine versus the slave food that they fit us. The lack of vision. They go on and Apple says this, we nearly always turn down change because the cost for return ratio does not seem right. But what we fail to measure, this is so good. You don't get anything else this morning. This is worth everything you put in the offering. If you haven't given the offering this morning, guess we don't expect you regulars. You better get on it. All right. But what we fail to measure, that's bad pastor humor, sorry. Because it's often immeasurable is the high cost of not making the change. When we say no to sensible but faith-stretching improvement in life and ministry, we never fully understand how expensive that they really are. I submit to you this morning that in our church and in your life, not wrestling with what is God's vision for this season of my life is costing you more than you even understand. The good news is there's a way forward. I like how Nelson and Apple say this. They say there's seven reasons why visions are important and why they work. And I just want to give you this list quickly. He said visions are made of heart. Head and heart are touched in vision. The spiritual and the emotional come together. The second thing they say about visions, why they're important and they work in our lives, is they provide a, a picture, a picture of a desire. Most of us think in pictures, but it is what it is instead of a picture 
of what it can be, a picture of what it can be. Often we just see what is versus what can be, and a vision helps us see a different picture, a different insight. I love how Paul, and I've shared this before, when he's talking about his past life in Judaism and how he was high up in in his culture and in his leadership and being trained under the most esteemed religious uh, rabbi, Gamaliel of the day, and, and once he encounters Jesus Christ, his picture of his past life changes. We might put it in our context. I know where I stood in terms of my education or my society or my culture, my job, my, my wealth or whatever it is. Uh, and I had a picture of all of that. Uh, but then Jesus changes that. And then he looks back and he makes this m- amazing statement to anybody still within Judaism. It just sounds absolutely bonkers. He says uh, that compared to what I had in the past, trained by the best rabbi, best education, was, was uh, politically powerful, was religiously powerful, climbing the ladder of success on his way up, And then he encounters Jesus, and Jesus changes all that. And he said, now when I look through the vision of Jesus Christ, I consider everything before as if it were dung. And that's being polite, what he's saying. But I consider it dung in comparison, hyperbole comparison, in comparison to, and this is important, the surpassing knowledge of knowing Jesus Christ being found by him, being captivated by him, going from glory to glory in Christ and the spiritual journey with Jesus now as my vision and my lens for how I will live out my life. I compare it, it's trash to me, it's garbage to me, it's rubbish to me compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ as my Lord. How does one come to that point? Out of a hostile religious situation, and Paul was trained philosophically. He's, he quotes, and there's Stoicism woven out, and, and confronting some of the Stoics and Epicureans. Uh, Epicureans and, like, you see, he's an intelligent guy, and he is captivated by an encounter with Jesus that changes the trajectory, and it becomes the vision and the lens he sees his whole life through, forward and backward. Number three, visions highlight a way out of today's discomfort, a preferred future, a preferred future. Pain and gain motivate us, Right? Pain is often more powerful because we want to get rid of an uncomfortable situation. Frustration can motivate us to change from something and to change to something. Unfortunately, pain can come and go, but visions help us also see the positive side of that, the gain. What do we have to gain if we risk our faith in our lives in Jesus Christ? I think of pain and gain motivating me some years ago to start training at the gym. I remember seeing a picture of myself bent over with my very small children at the lake in Yankton, South Dakota, right on Lewis and Clark Lake. And as I was in this picture, there was this belly here. (laughs) And that picture hurt me. It's like that little dog that says, well, he... He doesn't look like he can hurt me, and then he gives an awful insult out of the dog's mouth meme. He says, yes, but he can hurt you in other ways. That picture hurt me in other ways. And I was motivated. I also had a grandfather who uh, died of stomach cancer, and before that was extremely obese most of his life. And so there's some of that, probably some of that genetic piece in part of my DNA. That motivated me. And mental health as well to how do I become as a pastor, stay on top of those things in my life. Pain can motivate us to change. But that doesn't drive me as much anymore. It's the gain of health and life and energy and all of those things. And so what motivates us to change? Number four, they say, Nelson Apple say, full of hope. A vision's work because they give us hope. They show us a preferred future over a dreaded future. A preferred future over a dreaded future. 
if I can just be real, amongst us, we're just friends, right? A dreaded future for us is the church doesn't reach people. The church doesn't become outrageously welcoming and loving, and we have to close or we have to merge. That's not the worst thing in the world, but it's not our preferred future. Our preferred future is that we see new people engage in this community and own this community, and this community of faith grows and makes an impact. Uh, Yes? Amen? Hebrews 11.1 tells us that, you know, we, we aim forward. We walk forward by faith. Number five, a reason for unity. We're better together than we can ever be apart. We are better together than we can ever be apart. We are better together than we can be apart. And we talk about values, the last thing I'm going to talk about, unity versus uniformity. We want unity, but we do not want uniformity. But our unity is clarified in vision. Number five, or number six rather, God provides direction when we wrestle with vision. If we ask the Lord, Lord, give us a vision, he often does. He speaks to his people in various ways. And seventh on that list is it's powerful. They say nearly all effective changes and improvements come with a vision of a new future. Lack of vision often sinks well-intentioned people. There's a saying that says this, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Oh, we want the church to be this. Oh, we want to make disciples. Oh, oh we, we want to see improvements in our gatherings, in our, in our home groups. We, we, we intend to do this and we intend to do that, but until we actually align that with something clarifying it, uh, it doesn't usually go anywhere. It's powerful. Lack of vision sinks well-intentioned people, and often what happens in a church with a lack of focus and clarity and alignment is people vote with their feet over time. Most people aren't going to fight about it. They just kind of wander off to the church that does seem to care and have a focus. There's more we could say about vision, but I, I want to just give you these questions, and then we're going to unpack ours. Um, oh, man, i got to land this thing. All right. Questions to ask. How urgent do we need clarity, and how urgent is our vision? How urgent do we need clarity, and how urgent is vision? In your life, is it urgent? Someday I'll worry about that. There are people that go through their 20s and 30s wasting a ton of life that they could be clarifying and figuring out who it is God's wired them to be to be more productive and make a greater impact in their later 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and the rest of their life. And our culture encourages us, if you're young adults, to be sort of an adult child for a very long time. We have to confront that in the body of Christ. What has God called you to do with your life? Where's your urgency at? Not urgent someday, somewhat urgent soon, or urgent now. In our church, where are we at with vision? Well, someday maybe, someday maybe soon, or now. And how do you see the importance of vision? Those are things I hope you wrestle with in your home church. All right, I'm going to skip over. Wayne Cadero, pastor of a mega church in Hawaii, gives us, three, gives us four ways we can react in life. And I'll just give you the list, but then we're going to finish with talking about the vision. A life of reaction, a life of conformity, a life of independence with the illusion that I'm an island, no one really is, and a life of intentionality. Obviously, number four is what we want to aim for, that we're being intentional about aiming for things in our lives and that things we have to move from natural to deliberate as life goes on. Okay, let me unpack the vision statement. So what did this team come up with? Is it a good statement? I think it is. They've asked me to preach on it, so I'm doing that. See that? I am teachable and submitted to the elders and the board of Pilgrim Church. I just want you to know that. This statement they came up with, and I'll read it to you, and then we'll unpack it, and then we'll go out this morning. It says, this goes the next layer after the mission statement, and you have this vision statement. We exist to love our city 
and to invite our neighbors to flourish by rooting our lives, meaning ours, theirs and ours, all of ours together, by rooting our lives in the outrageous love and life of Jesus. We exist to love our city. We at Pilgrim Church, and I could put this in leaning forward language, we aspire to be a church that loves our city, invites our neighbors to flourish by rooting our lives in the outrageous love and life of Jesus. Before I just unpack it quickly, a few things to understand about this. We put it in present tense, but it can also be said in future tense. We envision a church that we will become, we aspire to, would also be ways to say this. But the language choice is super intentional. Unlike the mission statement, which is straight up scripture, this language is in common English. It's intentional, so a non-Christian or a considering Christianity person can read it and begin to understand what is the story behind the story for the people at Pilgrim Church. When people ask, why Pilgrim Church, this ought to be top of mind. In fact, I would encourage everyone to memorize it, or at least the key words in it. Love, invite, flourish, and root in Jesus. Love, invite, flourish, root, Jesus. (laughs) That this becomes something that functions for a source of unity when we ask about strategies and goals and values, which we'll talk about in two more weeks or or another Sunday out. And that this thing, instead of saying, well, Pilgrim, well, we're a neighborhood church. Yeah, we certainly are that. Or or we start off as a German immigrant church. Now we're a third, first, second, third uh, immigrant church for everybody in this part of Vancouver. Uh, We started out as, uh, you know, instead of all that stuff, you go to this. Well, we as a church are desiring or growing or aiming to be a church that loves Vancouver and our city or larger area, that we exist, we want to invite. And invite is a hospitality word, by the way. If you want to use old school language, it's not just evangelization, it's also sharing life together to invite people in, to turn outsiders into insiders. This vision statement speaks to that. To open ourselves, to break down the walls of culture and of generations and of economic class, we want to invite our neighbors, wherever they're at, into the community of faith. And not only that, the outrageous hospitality turning outsiders into insiders We want people to flourish. And this Jeremiah 20, and the scriptures that speak to this statement, Jeremiah 27, 9 says, uh, 29, verse 7 says this. He says, Seek the peace and prosperity of the city for which I have carried you into exile and pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Stanley Hauerwas wrote a book called Resident Aliens. And that as Christians, we live in two kingdoms. And when you become a believer, you enter into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And what was primary before, my nationality, maybe my ethnicity, my social economic class, whatever was my education, all those things may have been primary before. But when you say yes to Jesus, he turns us into a new kind of family. And those old things want to keep putting themselves on top. So that's why we got to be flexible with how we worship and some of those things. Uh, they want to push themselves on top. But in Christ, we remember first and foremost, I have become a child of the Most High God. I'm a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, and I exist at the pleasure to do the pleasure and the will of Jesus the King. And so it changes our loyalty. We exist to love our city, invite our neighbors to flourish by rooting our lives in the outrageous love of Jesus. I thought I had more time this morning, but I, I know it's getting to the end here. 
Each one of these verses speaks to all or part of this mission statement. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8 says this, Beloved, let us love each other because love is from God, and everyone who loves is born from God and knows God. The person who doesn't love does not know God because God is love. We exist to love our city. We exist to root our lives in the love of Jesus Christ, defined by him and his teachings. John 13, verse 34, a new commandment, Jesus says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. And by this, this is a love that invites so other people can encounter it. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We are a lab of love to invite, to flourish, to root. Let me read a few more and we'll land it. Flourish goes back to Jeremiah 29.7. Prospers, flourish would be a modern way of speaking of that. Paul in Ephesians says this. He says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father in heaven from whom every family in heaven on earth is named. From the very beginning he made claims on all of us and all of our ancestors and our future from whom every family in heaven on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with the power of his Holy Spirit inside of you, Ephesians 3.17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the height, breadth, length, depth of the love of Christ and his knowledge. You would be filled with the fullness of God. And let me read one more story. I'll invite the worship team to come up at this time as well. We will unpack this more, but we're introducing it today. There are so many scriptures that speak to this. It's, they did good work. <laughs> but I want to end by focusing just on that first part, to invite. Turning outsiders into insiders. I find it interesting in the New Testament, the church wrestles with who can do what in the church. And Elders and teaching elders in First Timothy and Titus are held to a certain standard, and everyone else, it's gradations of where you're at with Jesus in trajectory to him. But there's an interesting story that Jesus tells. In Matthew 22, it's a parable, so it's a, an un, not a true story, but a, a meant to teach. And he said that there was a master who wanted to have a wedding feast, and his son was ready to get wet, married. And he says to his servants, the wedding feast is ready. But those who were invited kept saying no and making excuses why they couldn't come and found themselves unworthy. And he said to his servants, go to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. Hear this, friends. This is worth it. Verse 15, when, when those reclining with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is every, Jesus said, blessed is everyone who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. And he restates, he says, but Jesus said, a certain man prepared a great banquet, invited many guests, and when it was time for the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, those who should have been part of it, who should have been on God's mission, said, come, for everything is now ready. But one after another, they began making excuses. The first one said, I like Awana better than that, and if we don't do Awana, I can't do that. Another one said, if we don't have electric guitars, I can't do that. Please excuse me, you don't have the right band at the wedding. And another one said, well, I, I only like services preferably in my Mennonite German dialect of Plattdeutsch, of the Amish. And if you can't, if you, uh, oh, Jesus, help me. 
Or if it's my first cultural language, if it's not that, I'm not comfortable. That's so easy. One after one, verse 18, they began making excuses. The first one said, I bought a field and I need to go see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. I got an economic thing going on here. Excuse me. Another said, I've married a wife and I need to, let's get it on. So I cannot come. That was not in the original scripture. And the servant returned and reported all this to the master. And the owner of the house became angry and said to his servants, Go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And this has been interpreted both literally and spiritually. And sir, the servant replied, What you have ordered is done and there is still room in your house. So the master, verse 23, told his servants, Go out into the highways and the hedges and the byways and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. For I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will taste of my banquet. Would you stand with me this morning as we end this? I want to throw that vision statement back on the screen for a moment. Thank you guys in the back. We exist to love our city. Seek the welfare of your city. They will know us by our love. He who does not love does not know God. We exist to love our city. We exist to invite outrageous hospitality. That's not just formal parties. That is into the nitty-grittiness of our lives. We got to learn how to be more missional with our neighbors and invite them to flourish. Jesus wants you to come more alive than everything this world has been promising you. If he's in the right place, the rest of it gets in proper order. If he's not there, it all becomes idolatry and anxiousness and striving, and it will never fully satisfy By rooting, Paul says, I pray that you would be rooted and grounded in the love of God, that you would know the height and depth, the width, the breadth of the love of God, rooting your lives in him in the knowledge of Jesus, his love and his life. Jesus is the final word. He's the first word. Colossians tells us, I didn't read that verse. That's part of the statement. In him, all things hold together. He is the sustainer of creation. In him, we live and move and have our being. I call you this morning, church, to have clarity and vision and then the values and all of our strategies, all of our goals need to line up with this vision and mission for this season. This is the filter. This is the guideline. This is what we're aspiring to be. If it doesn't help us do this, we don't do it. It may be good, but it's not our best for this season. And so I challenge you, beloved, Put Jesus at the center. If you're not a Christian and you're considering it, this would be a beautiful day to cross the line of faith and say yes to Jesus. I am going to follow you. I'm not going to be my own God anymore. I take off whatever gods I may be following and I say yes. And as a church, it's a time to recommit. Pilgrim, why do we exist? This is a beautiful statement. They did good work. It preaches And it's living, and it's something we can live into. Let's pray together. Lord, I know that you are working in this church. I know there's an enemy that wants to steal, kill, and destroy. Wants to distract us. Lord, we name that. But God, we want to have unity around you. So I pray that a deep work of unity in this church would take place. 
I pray that we would have focus on the future. Celebrating the past, but focusing on what you've called us to for the next season. God, I pray that you'd rebuke the adversary on behalf of everyone in this room. And God, that as we lean into you and we lean into you, Jesus, that you would continue to guide us along the way of life. And for those that need to say yes to you today that are ready to say yes, may they not delay any longer. If that's you, you can talk to my wife and I afterwards or anyone you see up here on the stage and we'd be happy to just pray with you again and affirm. But today may be your day. And so, Lord, we pray, send us out in your name.